And so I got the top restaurant because I was the best busboy at picking up those glasses and forks. He says, so if you're faithful over the little things and you give it all you got, life is going to watch you and give you promotions. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. Today's guest is somebody that I actually met on Clubhouse, and this is what the world has come to. We have come to, it has become a very small place. I feel that I know him. I feel that I have heard so much about him. I've read about him. But now I want to go and get, get to know a little bit more. I want to find out a little bit more about the gorgeous Che Noland. He was a professional baseball player for seven years. He grew up in Kentucky. I want to know about that. I want to know about all his travels. He's traveled all over the world, has been speaking all over the world and has been doing business. He just told me in over 90 countries. And he is an author, an NLP practitioner, and he has just launched a new book called The Science of Getting Rich. And that's definitely something that everybody wants to know more about. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Jay Noland. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for having me. What a great title, Most Memorable Journeys. I believe that all of us, we want to have a fulfilling journey in life, being able to see uh, all the places around the world. It's just a, a, a phenomenal uh, topic and a headline for your show, and I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. And yes, because I, I chose the title not just because of journeys as in travel, but as you said so well, journey in life, because our life is a journey and it's important to enjoy the journey and not only concentrate on the destination. I, I believe that's so true. Like a lot of times when I'm in airports and, you know, think about when you're going to the destination. If I'm going to some phenomenal place like Cyprus, you know, and or Greece or some awesome place around the world. On the way there, at the airport, the people you're meeting, that's part of the journey. You mean you make so many connections on your way to the journey and on your way back from your journey. And I think a lot of times uh, folks kind of miss that. So I've learned to really embrace where I'm going every single moment. I love we'll be talking about the, the new book we released. But, you know, Wallace D. Wallace says the only time there is is now. And man, when I heard that, it just resonated with my soul. So I, I do everything in my power to live now, right now, every moment. But you know, you mentioned something now about the people to connect, you connect with on a journey, but I have noticed something. I have I'm quite old and I have been traveling for many years and I used to be a tour guide when I was young and especially during the times when we didn't have phones, when we didn't have laptops. And those were the days when we used to speak to each other on planes. Now, everybody is just concentrating on those devices and there is no, I've had the most amazing conversations with the most amazing people on, on trips. And um, I think it's a little bit of a shame that we have lost this or partly yeah. lost it. It still happens. I make conversations happen all the time. I literally do it on purpose. So if you catch people kind of putting their, you know, their face down. I mean, all of us, we've got stuff we've got to do from time to time. But I literally just, and I, I might make that. I say, Isn't it so funny how, you know, we're always looking down at our phones when we got these incredible people sitting next to us. I want to know what's incredible about you. And then people like look at you and then we we'll just start gabbing. There we yeah, go. I think I'd, I'd like to be on a plane with you. <laughs> We'd have some fun. 
So tell me, you grew up in Kentucky and I was reading a little bit about this. Did you grow up with your grandparents? Yeah, the, my grandparents, I spent uh, uh, most of my like childhood years with them. My parents, bless their hearts, because nobody really knows how to build a relationship because we're not taught that in school. But my parents were always arguing, always in turmoil, and they were always dropping me off at my grandparents' house with my dad's uh, mother and father. And so that just kind of like became like my home. And so I felt most comfortable with my grandparents uh, over the years. And I spent like, you know, the integral moments, you know, when a child is really needing that nurturing. My grandmother, Ida Mae Nolan, and my grandfather, Jim Willie Nolan, they were right there all the time. And I can remember sometimes I'd be crying because I was upset about something that was going on with my parents. And I, you know, as a kid, sometimes you throw some hysterics and I'd be like, I don't understand. And I remember Elizabeth one time, my grandmother came running and my grandfather came running. They were like, it's not, and one of them got in front of me, one of them got behind me and they both wrapped themselves and put me in the middle and said, you always are loved with us. You always have a home. We're always going to protect you. I feel that to this day, even though they're gone. Oh, that is so beautiful, I think. And you know, this is what I always say, feel or say about bringing up kids. It doesn't really matter where the love comes from as long as there is love. So true. Man, that love I got. I can feel my grandmother. I can feel her those late nights, you know, putting those those sheets all the way up to my neck. <laughs> Get, I'm talking about it, it. I would be burning up. And my grandmother, she just tuck in a little bit more. But that was that extra love, you know. And she reached down and gave me a kiss after she'd been working all day, no air conditioning in the house, growing up in the South in the United States of America. <coughs> my goodness, man, you're talking about hot, no air conditioning. She cooked breakfast, she cooked lunch, she cooked dinner, she had snacks, she was sweating all the time, but she always made sure that we all felt love. And I just, I, it's eternal. I, I always tell my grandmother, I love you forever, you know. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And talking about air conditioning, you know, I, I came to Cyprus the first time in 1982, many, many years ago. I was I was sent here by a Swiss tour operator and I had no idea where I was going. And I had a tiny little car and I was driving a lot. I had to go all over the island to visit clients. I had no air conditioning. I don't know how I did it. When I think of it now in the summer, I think we have we become really spoiled or has it become warmer that I don't know. I think it's both like for real. I think it's overall warm. It's warmed up around the earth. I, I can really tell that it's something about the rays now. I don't know. You know, I know you do a lot of travel. And so it, it seems like the 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 ozone, I don't know what's going on, but it's easier to get burnt now than it used to be. When I, we used to go run around. Nobody really knew anything about sunscreen when I was coming up. And you just run around all day outside playing, it, you know, out in the park or whatever. And now you go out and you run around and you're like, man, I'm kind of like burnt. I'm kind of, you know, feeling a little toasted here. And so something's going on. We can't deny that with the earth. Yeah. But uh, thank goodness for air conditioning. <laughs> Absolutely. So tell me, Jay, how did you become a, a professional baseball player? I mean, you, coming from Kentucky, how did that happen? My dad literally groomed me to be a professional baseball player, even though he was, you know, a farmer. You know, he grew up. My grandfather was a, far, a hog farmer, <laughs> pig farmer, and uh, my dad was right there with him. But my dad got involved in the softball. And then they got real good. The league he was in, 
they ended up getting some serious sponsorships to where it became more of a, a side profession for him playing softball. So he was always so intrigued. But my grandfather, he participated in the side Negro Leagues. So he used to pitch, and it was a big deal in the United States of America. Baseball used to be the thing. Now it plays third fiddle to, to football, American football, and also basketball. But it used to be the number one here in the United States of America. My grandfather was just an awesome pitcher. So my they were always talking to me about it. And my dad would take me to batting cages. And from the time I could really get going, you know, when I was like six, seven years old, I'm starting to do it with my son now. He's seven. And, um, and he used to always tell me, he says, you know what? One day you're going to end up being a professional baseball player. He just dropped that in my ear. I'm like, huh? I ain't paying attention to it. And as I just kept going, I just noticed that, you know, I do a lot better than a lot of other people around me because my dad was always working me, throwing and hitting. And so I just, uh, he kind of groomed me to be that. Yeah, but you did enjoy it. It's not like you were forced to do it. You, it was presented to you in a good way. Yeah, and all my cousins and friends, we always <laughs> playing wiffle ball and, you know, a little sandlot ball. We always had pickup games going on and and the side games. So while my dad was playing softball, we had all, we had like, it was big time. All these kids kind of travel with their dads. So we'd always have side wiffle ball games going over in the sides of the park. So I look forward to being able to play all the time with my friends. And so it, it really grew on me. Now, when my parents divorced, when I was nine, I rebelled against my dad leaving and my mom, you know, splitting up. So I had to go live with my mom with my with my little sister when I was nine because the judge said, oh, yeah, let's keep y'all together. And I didn't, I played for a couple of years and then I stopped. So from 12 to like 16, 11 to 11 to 12, 16, it was like four or five years of integral years, I didn't play. And then when I just turned 16, I ended up moving to Florida. My dad moved from Kentucky to Florida and um, he got remarried. So I, I moved down with him. And he, he was like, hey, you going to play baseball? And I said, Dad, I don't want to talk about it. I mean, it was a tense situation. I'm like, no, I don't want to talk about it. He's like, I sure would. You know, I did all that time putting that energy into you. I'm like, no. And he just backed off of me. Like, he did not press me after one or two pokes. He just backed off of me. And at the school, they were always asking me, hey, you know, because my dad played in a professional softball league in Florida. They were like, come on out and play. And I was like, ah. And then one day I just like, all right, I guess I'll do it. He's quit pressuring me. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And I can remember, Elizabeth, my first day, they gave us 10 pitches. I missed nine of the 10 pitches and I barely tipped one of them. And everybody's like, okay, this guy's supposed to be pretty good. And I, but you know what my dad did? He took me and drove me 35 miles to the nearest batting cage every day for two weeks to get me back on track. And then the rest is history. Fantastic. And you did that for seven years and you played for some major uh, teams. Yeah. So I ended up, I went to college for a couple of years. I got my, I got a scholarship to Central Florida Junior College in Ocala, Florida. I played two years there, became an All-American after my second year. I then got recruited by the University of Miami for major college. And then uh, at the same time, the San Diego Padres, the, the professional baseball team, they drafted me in June of 1988, right when I was being recruited. And I had just signed my letter of intent to finish my last two years of college. And so it's a really crazy predicament because here's this professional team. They come and meet with you with their, with their representatives. And they go, hey, 
Here I'm 19 years old. They go, we'll give you all this money and you can quit struggling, you know, eating spaghetti 45 different ways in college. <laughs> or you can go to college for two more years. And I was like, I think I'm going to stop eating spaghetti 45 different ways. So at 19 years old, I had a boatload of money that was given to me. And I got and my reason was I could always go back and finish college if I wanted to. And uh, and I became professional and I played four years with the San Diego Padres, one year with the Colorado Rockies and one year with the Seattle Mariners. Back in 1995 was my last year. I blew my elbow out and um, that was it. So that's what forced me into business. And into business you went. I went. All the way. I kept the mindset. I never, you know, in the United States of America, one in five, uh, globally, I should say, one in 500,000 kids that play baseball around the world ever become a professional baseball player in the United States of America. So no matter where you're playing around the world, everybody's trying to get to play with one of the teams here in the United States of America and so I ended up becoming one of those 500,000. Well, that takes crazy discipline to do that. So when I got injured, I was frustrated as all get out because I was really about to, I felt going to make millions of dollars doing uh, something I, I really loved. I had to just say, what are you going to do? And, and I just thought that that would put a cap on me, you know, just getting a paycheck. I just didn't want to do it. And so I said, what can give me unlimited income like I could have playing professional sports? And that was business. It was owning a, and owning, operating a business, getting other people's efforts involved. And I, off I went. I studied success principles. I grabbed a book, Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I'd never heard of it before. I was 27 years old. And I was like, man, this is unbelievable. So I dove into it probably a little bit different than most people get started in business. I was like, professional athlete discipline was what I was learning. But you know, because it's funny that you're saying that 20, you met, I think you started reading Think and Grow Rich at 27. I actually met Tony Robbins when I was 29. I, I walked into one of his, uh, one of his public speaking seminars by mistake. I was a tour guide in LA and I was bored and I, he had just written his first book, but it's these moments that change your life. But I want to say something else um, about discipline because you know, people talk about overnight success, about becoming rich quick. It's not rich becoming rich. It's work. It's a lot of work and it's discipline and it's grind. And it's it's very, very important that um, people realize that it happens, doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time and it takes a lot of work and consistency. What do you think? The same thing with becoming a professional athlete. I mean, you see people on TV and you see all the like the glory and the fame that they get and all the people chasing them for autographs. It's all the stuff that happened before you see them on TV that determines whether you get on TV. When nobody's looking, that's the biggest money in the world is when nobody's looking, can you do that? And I had a mentor early on. So when I was playing with the San Diego Padres, I was like 19, 20 years old, and I would go eat at this restaurant. Uh, it was in Yuma, Arizona, which is the hottest place in the United States of America. It's just hot. I'm, you, you know, I'm sure I've you, been there. I've been okay. there when I was a tour guide. <laughs> <laughs> just hot, you know. And so it's right there on the border of Arizona and Mexico. And our spring training was there. So here I am. And I never heard of Yuma. But I go to this restaurant 
after practice and whatnot. And this guy that was a younger guy, I was like 19, 20. He was like 31, 32. He was the owner of the restaurant. And he just kind of took a liking to me. He'd ask me stuff about practice and what's going on. And, and he and I would hit it off. But I noticed that he'd always go visit each table and see how people were doing. And one day he says, hey, you know what? I rescued greyhound dogs. And I was like, wow, like the race dogs, the greyhounds? And he goes, I take them, I, the ones I rescue, I take them out in the desert and I let them chase around jackrabbits. You like to go out with me sometime? I was like, yeah, it'd be cool. So he took me out in the desert in this big uh, catering band, and he had this big greyhound in it named Zach. I never will forget Zach. We get in the greyhound, we, I mean, we get in the band, we go out, we got Zach. He lets him out, and sure enough, there goes Zach tearing through the desert, and you see him chasing these jackrabbits. And while Zach is just running, he goes, oh, he just loves to run. I just let him just get it out. He looks over at me and he says, um, you know, I've noticed something special about you. I'd like to be able to pour into you if you, if you let me. I'm like, sure. He goes, you want to know how I got the number one restaurant in all Yuma County? And I was like, how? He goes, because when I was a bus boy, meaning the people that clean up the dishes on the table, he goes, I was the best, best bus boy anybody had ever seen in my mind. And I was like, I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. And he says, and because I was the best bus boy, I got a promotion to become a dishwasher. And he said it, Elizabeth, with such passion, like, who gets fired up about becoming a dishwasher, a promotion? But he said, and when I became a dishwasher, I was the best dishwasher. And I got a promotion to become a waiter. And then I became the best waiter. And I got a promotion to become an assistant manager. And then I got a promotion because I was the best assistant manager to become the manager. And because I was the greatest manager in my mind. I got a promotion to where I could own my own restaurant. And so I got the top restaurant because I was the best busboy at picking up those glasses and forks. He says, so if you're faithful over the little things and you give it all you got, life is going to watch you and give you promotions. And so that's how you become successful, in my opinion, is that you become real faithful. So every time I see young people put that little extra hustle in and yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and courteous, I always encourage them. I go, if you're faithful over this, you'll get another promotion. And so if people look at that in life, that's how you end up becoming successful, in my opinion. And it's taking pride in what you do, no matter what it is, and uh, being the best at whatever you do. Yes, absolutely. Even so all you get. I want to talk a little bit about all those traveling that you did to all these different countries where you went to speak what was the furthest and what was the craziest and what was the most uh the most memorable we're talking about most memorable journeys here i mean it's just so many to count you know i first my first big journey was before it was business i in 1992 i was invited i was one of a handful of people to get put on a special professional team in the United States of America to go to play the Taiwanese. So to go to Taiwan and we played the Taiwanese professional team. We got to meet the president of the country. I mean, it was a big deal. These United States of America players. So we were the first professional players to ever go to Taiwan and play there. And it was packed out stadiums. We played, we played four different stadiums and it would be 40 plus thousand people in every stadium just going nuts. But 
I can remember going there and the difference in food and the time changed, like 13, 14 hours difference, you know, forward. And, and it was a trip, man, just to be able. And I went in the stadium and I'm telling you, Elizabeth, these people walked in there with pots and pans. These people started beating and banging and they, you could not hear yourself think. It was so loud. That stays already loud with 40,000 people, but and it was just, you know, to have to concentrate through that was a trip. And then when I got in business, it started taking me all over the place. I mean, it just, uh, I mean, I've been, I've done all throughout Europe. I mean, I've been in Budapest. I've been in uh, Taiwan and then over to Hong Kong and then over to Singapore and then over to Malaysia and then over to Vietnam and then Korea. And just all these places are, it's incredible just to be able to see that we got this one thing in common. Everybody just wants a better life. So my most memorable speaking event, I think, would be in Salzburg, Austria. You know, where they talk, what's that called? The Something about the song or some famous uh, movie that came out of there. The Sound of Music. The Sound of Music, yes. Yes. I went went and visited the, the place where they did that. But I was speaking at an event there. It was this packed out big stadium, I mean, auditorium. 13 different languages. So everybody walked in and they were checking in, getting these headsets. So while we were speaking, it, what we were saying was being translated into 13 different languages. And I was like, okay, well, how am I going to handle this? And then I just went into myself and I said, give it all you got and let people feel you. And I never will forget. I just went in and I poured my heart. The next thing you know, people from all these different countries were standing up on chairs and screaming, going, yeah. And I was like, wow, if you just pour you, that's going to relate to people globally if you give them what you really are. And that's everybody's got that greatness in them. And so that really impacted me when I saw that no matter what the language is, if you pour your energy and people can feel, because I'm sure the interpreters weren't getting every one of my words right. People were feeling me more than the actual words, I believe. Yeah, that is so true. I mean, it's it's so much about the energy and, and people can feel it exactly as you say, because I am actually an interpreter and sometimes I, it, it's quite difficult to follow and it doesn't really matter 100%. As long as you're not tr- translating for the, I don't know, for, for, for uh, NATO or something, but <laughs> it's the energy and the feeling. And when you see that you can have an impact on people's lives because some people need to hear this. They need you. They need to know know that they are worth it. They need to know that it's possible for them as well. And it, you know, that there is hope. I think it's all, it's, it's a lot about giving people the confidence and the hope that anybody can do it. If they, if you put the work in it. Yeah. Anybody. I can remember I took um, a company I co-owned back in 2009, we took 40 people to China and we were up in the Puchin forest. So we had this farm that we cultivated a a different uh, medicinal type of mushroom as part of one of our product lines. And we took 40 of our leaders over there to see this organic because we had these uh, mushrooms that would grow off of the side of this mountain and it was fed by a spring. But I can remember being in those little country towns and sometimes we'd be down in over in these rice fields and these people in these villages would be staring at us like, like, like they just... Who are these people? 
and you see them living so modest, but they were, there was so much happiness, you know, like the simple things, you know, and, 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 and there was a moment I was down in this village. I seen this little kid and the little kid was staring up at me and I had a translator with me. And I, I told the translator, I said, I want you to say this to the little kid. And the little kid came, was like just staring up. And I said, you are awesome. You are powerful. You can do anything. And this little kid's eyes, he went from this and eyes started getting big and just looking at me and said, shish. So like in Chinese, shish means thank you. And I just, oh, I, I just remember those moments, you know, it's little stuff like that in my travels that you just capture those, those times and it stays with you forever. And these are the things that little kid never will never forget what you said. And this is moments in life that can change everything. Yes. Now, the science of getting rich, how did that start? How did that come about? It's, uh, you know, we've done the updated version. So our version is out now, just came out available in print yesterday. The ebook is on sale right now, uh, officially as of yesterday, the 15th at the time of this recording of June. And so 1910, Wallace D. Waddles, this obscure man, Nobody really knew about him. Wallace D. Waddles wrote this book, The Science of Getting Rich. And if you if you ever have heard anything about The Secret with Rhonda Byrne, Rhonda Byrne attributes The Secret to this book. She says in 2004, one of her parents just died. One of her kids was very sick. She just lost $2 million with the business. She was having an emotional breakdown. And then her, one of her adult daughters came to her and said, gave her an old scrappy book and said, Mom, read this book. It'll make you feel better. And she was like, all right, what the heck? It took about 90 minutes. So if you just sit down and really stare, it's not a long read. A couple hours, maybe three or four hours at most, if you just really get into it and read it. She said she read it in 90 minutes, and it changed her life. So I heard this interview last year on Conscious TV, and I was like, it's something about it. It really struck me, though, her conviction about it. Now, I've been around this book for 25 years, and I never had read it. I was so entrenched into thinking Grow Rich. I'm like, I don't need any other books because this is what I have just put all my principles into and learned from. Well, Thinking Grow Rich was written in 1937-ish. Science of Getting Rich was written in 1910. So you're talking about 27 years before, quarter of a century, more than a quarter of a century before Thinking Grow Rich. And I was like, well, let me go see what Ron is talking about. So I read the book. After I got through two chapters of the book, I then said, the world's got to know about this book. And I believe just after two chapters that Napoleon Hill was inspired. This is my opinion. I believe Napoleon Hill was inspired by Wallace D. Waters and the science of getting rich to do what he did in, in thinking grow rich. So to me, the great, great grandfather of the entire new thought movement, the law of attraction, manifestation is Wallace D. Waters. But Wallace D. Waters didn't self-promote. Napoleon Hill is like the Muhammad Ali of personal growth. He could, he was great at at understanding the principles, but he was also great at promoting himself and his work. And he knew how to leverage. So Napoleon Hill got in with Carnegie and Henry Ford, these different people, and used their names as leverage. 
Wallace D. Waddles didn't even care about it. He just says, I was poor. I was a poor farmer from Illinois. I didn't have nothing. And he goes, all these poor people around me. And he wrote the book originally for these coal miners and poor farmers around him. And he says, I took about a decade to figure this stuff out because he was studying Descartes and, and Emerson and all the metaphysics stuff. And he says, I figured it out. And I applied it. And he said, within three years, he said, I got rich. And he says, anybody can do it. And so that intrigued me. I decided after I read it, I started looking at the language in it. So in 1910, it was older English. Also in 1910, all, almost all books were written from a masculine perspective. And even both in the United States, you say 1920. So about 10 years later, women can vote. And so Wallace Waddles, when he's speaking, he's talking to everybody because you know, because the, the, the partner, the publisher was a lady that had this publishing company and they were very close. So he loved to help women, but he would say things like, and when a man does this, and if a man would do this, now you as a woman and all women listening, you know, okay, they're talking to everybody, but you got to go compartmentalize that. And I said, what if I removed all that language? Because it was public domain. I said, what if I removed that language and I made it global universal to talk to men and women? And so instead of saying when a man does this, say when a person does this. And so we took all that out of the book. We cleaned up some of the language to bring it up to speed. And so it was a pretty easy read. Now it's just a crystal clear read from our publishing company, NYB Publishing, We've now done a universal edition. We did a clubhouse room, as a matter of fact, last night. It was just like people were going nuts. And all the people that have been reading it around the, the world, it's just people are just loving it. We believe that it will sell millions of copies because it's, it's the only one of its kind that took that masculinity out and is talking to everyone. And women are so important. But I believe we got to be able to, to have tools like that to show the importance to where everyone is equal. Because that was just, you, you've already answered my next question because I was going to ask you what changed or what did you update? So, um, well, thank you for updating it and making it available for everybody because I think we would have been a little upset if it was if it kept saying man. So I tried to download it. It's it's not available yet in my region, but we are going to put, by the time this uh, episode is going to go live, we're going to put all the links in the show notes so people can uh, find it. And I think that's definitely something worth reading. And it's also, you know, when you tell me that a book can be read in, because it's a fast living world, if a book can be read in a short time, we read it. Yes. Because some books are too complicated. They are too long. You start reading a few pages. We are distracted by, by things all the time. And um, I think it's important to, to write short books with uh, with uh, deep contents. Yeah. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to reading this. And yes, I think the science of getting rich, everybody can get rich. And also, of course, to define rich is also important because, yeah. you know, there are different ways of being rich. What is rich for you? Rich for me, I, you know, I, I base my life based upon, I call it the six pillars of success. So not just financial, that's automatic. We got to be able to have money to do everything in today's world. You know, the bartering is kind of gone. So financial, that's a pillar. That's just one pillar. But emotional, uh, 
mental, social, physical, spiritual, you know, all these six pillars are, are critical. So I want to have a great social life, which means I want to be able to communicate, interact, and develop relationships. I want to have rich relationships. I want to have a great marriage, which I've got. I want to be a great father, which I believe I am. I want to raise a great son to become a great man. That's a big social component. I want to be physically healthy. So if, I, if my health is, is, is at a zero, it doesn't matter how much money I got. So I want to be rich with my health. I want to have longevity. I believe everyone can live to 120 years. You know, that that's comes from, from the Bible and also comes from science. We can live to be 120 years. People are dying too early because they don't have the principles and the education and knowledge. I want to be strong mentally and also emotionally. People say, what's the difference? You got emotions that are staring up, you know, how you react with your mental is how you are able to calculate and how you're able to be to make great decisions. So I want to be great. I want to be rich with my decisions. I want to be rich with my not being able to to, to get shaken so easy. And, and, and then spiritually, I don't want somebody else to tell me how to think and what to believe spiritually. I don't want somebody in a pulpit. I don't need a preacher. I don't need a pastor. I don't need anybody else to tell me how to relate to the creator of all or creation of all. I don't need that. I want to be rich with that. So that's wealth to me. And that's why I'm so attracted to what Wallace Waddles did is because he teaches from that same foundation. But he says very clearly that in order to get rich in all these areas, you're going to have to develop some very important principles. And the first one is you have to be able to think the way you want to think. And to me, when I first read it, I was like, wait, okay, of course you think the way, am I thinking the way I, and we're not really thinking the way we want to think, most of us. We're thinking from this subconscious programming that most of it happened from zero to seven, that we had no input in and somebody else impressed upon our subconscious and all of a sudden we're adults and we think that we are in control of our lives when really this little child in us is running us for all these years. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't get programmed right, which most people didn't, why is, you can't blame anybody. I can't blame mom and dad because who taught them? And it's such a, you just got to keep going back and seeing that people were not prepped. We don't do it in schools. We don't have the support, media, education. None of us doing it. It has to be us. So what Wallace Waddles teaches here is that getting rich is no different than a plant growing. A plant wants to express itself as much as possible and multiply. One seed is not content with being one seed. It wants to produce into thousands of seeds. So just getting by is abnormal based on Wallace Wallace. He says, if you're just trying to get by, it'd be like a plant going, okay, I'm only gonna come up. You know, an apple tree going, I'm just gonna produce two apples. That doesn't make any sense. We'd all think that was the weirdest tree, that every year the apple tree just produced two apples. Nobody would think that that is right. Well, when you just produce a little bit or just make a little bit of money, that's no different than you just producing a couple apples. And once you get rid of that guilt, now the abundance is available to you. That's what's in that book.
Fantastic. I can't wait to read it. And as you were saying, you know, our subconscious programming in the first seven, six, seven years of our lives, I think it's very, very important to go into that subconscious mind and find out what what was put in there. And the people who put it in there, as you so well said, they did the best they knew. They They didn't know any better, but we can do better. And I think it's very important also to take full responsibility for our lives and for our decisions. And The secret really is that we can never choose what happens, but we can always choose how we want to react. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. And you're going to get some incredible tools. You know, when you read this book, we've got a site set up, get SOGR.com. We did a a little small video, little documentary where we're properly introducing Wallace Waddles to the world and the importance of it. And really, when you get through each chapter, you're going to find yourself getting stronger and stronger. I'm telling you, I've seen people change like now. Like I, I was like, what is Rhonda Byrne talking about? She changed in 90 minutes. And then I read it and I'm like, well, I'm changing in about 20 minutes. <laughs> amazing, amazing. So coming back to most memorable journeys, where does your next journey go to? You know, I love South America. My wife is from Colombia. And so we love South America. We've had a place down in Uruguay, which most people are not aware of where that's at. It's a little country of 3 million people right next to Argentina. Uh, We love that area. I love Europe. You know, every time I'm there, I just feel at home. But it's so funny that before the pandemic, my wife and I, we we were on a trip. And she surprised me and took me Uh, When I turned 50, she took me to the ABC Islands. So she took me to Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. (laughs) You got to go. If you haven't been. I've been. That's paradise. The water, you know, Elizabeth, that water. And you can walk out so far and the water is warm in the ocean. And we're sitting there. And I was like, I don't even really want this trip to end. And she's like, really? And I said, let's flip a coin. And let's go between one or two places. And she says, I said, pick two places. And so she says, San Andres, Colombia, which is an island off the coast of Colombia. And then she said, Greece. Greece and then go over Cyprus. So we flipped the coin and we and it came out and landed to where us to go, us to go to San Andres. And we go, okay, we'll go to San Andres. And then we'll say, okay, then the next year we'll go to Greece and over to Cyprus. And then the pandemic hit. So I can't wait to go to Greece and Cyprus to finish that coin flip. And I will be here waiting for you. And I think this is the perfect ending to this wonderful conversation, which I really, really appreciate. Thank you so much for taking the time, Jay, to speak to me. And um, any last advice or any last words? I, you know, I think I just always want to pour into everyone. I tell my son every single day, every night since he was conceived, when I didn't even know whether he was a boy or a girl, I was talking into my wife's stomach back in 2014 when we found out she was pregnant. And I said, you are awesome. You are powerful. You are mighty. You are wonderful. I just, I believe speaking those words into people, it changes things drastically. So for everyone that's listening and you got people 
like Elizabeth, that's put this type of platform together, this type of show. It pours into people. That's why these type of podcasts that you are doing are so critical because when people listen, they're going to be impacted to get better. It's like me putting water and sunshine on a plant. It's going to make you grow. So if you listen to these words that you are powerful, I mean it for you, everybody listening, you are powerful, you are mighty, you are wonderful, you are magnificent. You can do anything. If you really understand how important those words are and you receive them and say, I'm just going to be what Jay is saying right now. I'm going to do everything in my power to be wonderful, to be mighty, to be strong, to be happy. Happiness, in my opinion, is everything. If I'm not happy, it's not worth it. So I, I, I push, I, t- I always take all my chips and put them in on happiness. And I'm so happy right now to get to spend this time with you, Elizabeth, and your awesome show, and to get to grow with you over these years and to get to get together in our families and to break bread and all that kind of good stuff. So thank you for having me. And that's my parting words. Shay Noland, you are awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.